0: Hello and welcome to this bonus episode of the Talking Heads podcast
1: While our usual episodes at this time will continue with Lucy and I talking about our head gardening lives We also thought it would be nice to bring you other voices from the horticultural world
0: So from time to time we'll be bringing out these bonus episodes featuring conversations with head gardeners, curators, garden owners and other horticulturists from across the UK
1: Grab your favourite cuppa and settle back into this episode Well, welcome, everyone, uh, to this bonus episode of the Talking Heads podcast. Um, with these podcasts, we get in fellow horticulturists from around the UK to come and have a chat with us and see how their lives are going. Uh, and today, we're really excited to have uh, uh, Hyde Hall gardener, um, Matt Oliver. How are you, Matt?
2: You all right? I'm very well, thank you. Thank you for having me on.
1: <laughs> that's that's all right. Um People might know Matt from High Tall because he is heavily involved with the uh, global growth veg garden there. Uh, he's a. a, a- a veg gardener, very much uh, like Lucy. I think these two are going to have quite a uh, quite a good conversation and I will interject occasionally with my inferior veg knowledge. Um, I definitely know I want to talk to you about your giant pumpkins, but I think before we get into what you're doing at High Hall, uh, as we ask with all our people on these interviews, how did you get into gardening and how's your career path been so far up to where you are now?
2: Oh, right. Okay. Where to start? start i suppose um like a lot of people but uh, like we could almost uh any gardener would start the same way i think uh got into gardening through family you know uh out as a child with parents grandparents always had that background with uh the veg gardening because my dad had an allotment uh, my grandma had an allotment as well and then my other sets of grandparents they had one too so that was uh was my first introduction to gardening, really? Because uh, I'm a I'm a suburban kid from the city. Really, I'm not a, not a country boy at all. You know, we lived in a terrace house with a tiny little garden. Um, but I suppose when it comes to deciding to make a career out of it, um, as when I suppose you know gardening is not cool when you're a teenager, is it? You know, there's not really that many teenagers that are uh, that are really into gardening. I would say in a big way.
0: Yeah, no, I'm with you on that. I'm with you on that. I got ridiculed majorly at school for being interested in gardening and I'm, I'm so glad I yeah, ignored you. Still,
1: you still do, Lucy. We still, we still ridicule you. <laughs> <laughs> okay.
0: Yeah, actually, that, that's, that's, that is completely true.
2: <laughs> so, um, yeah, I suppose like a lot of 16 year I always have no real idea what I particularly wanted to do. I just knew I didn't want to work in an office. Lots of lots of my friends under a lot of pressure to get certain certain grades to get into their universities and stuff. Um, uh, I didn't have that pressure, uh, you know, wanting to, to to get a place to go to Rittle College it was not like, uh, you know, it's not like needing three straight A's at A level to get an interview to get into Oxford or Cambridge, is it? Um, it is different. And I, I remember at the time having a, a lot of my teachers are horty what what's horticulture. <laughs> never yeah. never even been mentioned at a, at a careers day at all. Um so I definitely yeah. very much the, the black sheep of my school, I suppose, in terms of career choice. Um Yeah, gosh. But you know, I knew I I knew even back then that that's what I wanted to do. I used to bunk off like one afternoon every week and I'd get on the train and I'd have to get on the Docklands Light Railway to get into Limehouse and I'd do it a couple of hours gardening uh, for from my grandma's friend and I, by the time I'd finished it'd be 5 6 o'clock and I'd have to get the train back and it hit. Matt is this a confession yeah, it, now is it this like hit. The, the <laughs> to... I'm sure I'm sure I'm sure I've gone beyond the age of uh, being dependent to to doing this now hopefully but um, I remember about my uh, getting the train back banging rush hour at the age of sort of 18 doing this that was that was the thing for me that was like I I might not know what I, I don't necessarily know what I do want to do but I know that I don't want to do mm-hmm. this I, I don't want to be getting on a train and commuting into London to go to work every day yeah. and that was that was clear clear indicator to me of what like, you're doing you're doing the right thing because you've proven to yourself that you definitely don't want to be doing this you know like
0: i think that like you say i mean that strikes a resonance with me and i'm sure it does so mm. as well when when you're um introduced into something that really captures your imagination whether it be horticulture or music or you know the anything like that that when you're young it, it's so it somehow really just really really latches you in and then the when you revisit those experiences, then later in life, it's something that feels so familiar to you. It's so intrinsic and feels like part of your nature that you can't imagine doing anything else at all. And you just have to go sometimes through that journey of like you say, working out, as you say there, what you don't want to be doing and realising that you say, this is not for me. And knowing that those other memories of being on the allotment with your grandparents, I mean, that that sounds idyllic. And um, I, you know, I remember my my granddad showing me how to grow cord and sweet peas when he looked after a museum in Dedham. And there's all these sorts of things that lock into you from such a young age that are, I think they're so important, because as you're finding or you you've sorry you found and i found as well when you're a teenager talking about wanting to be a gardener was it was laughter it was ridiculed yeah, that- I and i don't i would like i would really like to hope that things are changing now that attitudes are changing mm, now
1: hopefully um
0: but yeah i mean but i i remember my again it was never really encouraged for me uh and i'm i'm so glad i stuck with it i think I, I had a stubborn streak in maybe we all have i don't know what it is that, that made us stick with it but but it is um yeah i'm i'm very glad that we're all sitting here and we've we've chosen the paths that we did because but it, i'm hoping that people are more encouraged into horticulture now than they were back in back in those days so
2: yeah make and i i don't know if this would ring a bell with salt but um I definitely found I don't know if there's a difference between being a male and a female coming into it at a young age, but when I was a young, young lad getting into it, you you know, you used to get a lot of stick, you know, mm. oh well, look at old flower boy over there playing with flowers all day. And that's definitely been one of the one of the motivating things for me to be like that, you know, back then you all thought I was being silly and, and making a really bad choice and, and ridiculing me mm. for doing this, but I'm going to set out to prove to you that you know you can have a can have a respectable career doing this, and I can you know I can do lots of fun things and be a high achiever without having to follow the same route. And if one just thinks you have to follow to form a career, um, you've I, definitely
0: done that. Matt, you've definitely done that. I really really admire you. So
1: I, I think it's a, I think it's a good point because. The same as you, I fell in love with it as a early teens and went through my grandparents. But then, once you get to your late teens, your twenties, people are trying to push you in all kinds of other directions, and they don't think gardening is is a worthwhile career, which is a shame. Especially, you know, uh, back when I was back when I was a kid. But the one thing I think about now is how much those same people come back and actually are now quite respectful and they can see the career that I've made for yeah. myself and the same for you guys. And they actually, hopefully, that's changed their mind frame a little bit to say, actually, gardening mm-hmm. is a career and people are making really, really good jobs out of it. Hopefully, anyway.
0: Yeah. So Matt, was your first job as a gardener at Hyde Hall or did you do other, you obviously did you say some private gardening jobs, but then was your first sort of full to Time employment at high tall or how did it
2: work? Yeah, yeah. Sort first official sort of employment, I suppose. I mean, um I did. I think I did quite a good job of following the advice everyone's given. Where horticulture is so broad, go out and do everything and find out what you do and don't like. You know, it was sort of wavering between going ornamental horticulture and maybe sports turf. Probably because as a young, a young guy. It's probably seen as a bit more of a male dominated side of the, the industry, a little yeah. bit, I think. Yeah. So I picked up a lot from that working with a, a well respected groundsman who worked for my local cricket club at the time. And I, and I spent one summer, Brittle uh, College uh, got me some work on a private estate in North Weald one summer. Um, so that was a bit different doing sort of ad hoc work on a private estate you know garden maintenance on a on a large property with uh, wealthy owners so I did a bit of that
1: well we wouldn't know how that how that would (laughs) feel (laughs) to us (laughs) do we Lucy no that's all all
0: completely (laughs) alien to me what Matt's just said there
2: (laughs) (laughs) so I, I tried my hands at a couple of things and and there were certain parts of the industry that I knew I didn't want to be involved in coming back to Hyde Hall i started to started at Hyde what was it two thousand and eight two thousand and nine I started the yeah. studentship here, and mm-hmm. that was probably what you'd class as your first first proper official employment <laughs> um, you had a, where, you had a name no, badge
1: you, and everything
2: yeah had a had a name badge and a contract that you had to sign and things like that <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, <laughs> so yeah um and and yeah, the, the rest is history, I suppose. Um, <laughs> been here pretty much ever since, apart from a brief a brief hiatus where I went back to finish my last year at know, finish off your dissertation and, and that. Yeah, um, yeah.
0: So, what was the qualification at Rittle? Was it an HND or an ND? No, what, no, what I, did, did, a, I did a
2: BSc, so uh, BSc, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, degree in horticulture. Which, looking back, is probably uh, I've come into come into it slightly differently from from a lot of people where I've come from GCSEs, A-levels, quite academic subjects, straight mm. into horticulture, uh, at a high-level course, and I perhaps yeah. haven't had the, um, you know, the RHS Level 1, 2 or 3 or HMD practical mm. into it that perhaps a, a lot of other people w- within the industry have had. Um, yeah. But looking back, I, I don't I don't think that's Hindered me in any way. But, you know, I no, I wouldn't go back and change it.
0: Yeah. So we, I mean, we all know you nowadays as the head of the the global growth veg garden at Hyde Hall. Which is a, a, for those who haven't been, please get yourself there. It's this most uh, amazing vegetable garden that shows vegetables growing from all corners of the globe it's absolutely fantastic and and one of a kind really so were you always working in the vegetable garden at Hyde Hall because I I know Hyde Hall from years back when I first went um I was working at Wisley but I would also then go to Hyde Hall to visit the gardens and see the little garden center on the top of the hill the garden wasn't even there you know this I'm talking like 20 odd years ago um so was the vegetable garden your your base right from the start
2: I wasn't full-time in the vegetable garden no um Hyde Hall basically has no no heritage of veg gardening at all unless you go back to when the place was a farm. Um, so when I turned up, the old veg plots were reasonably new and very much built on a bit of a low-budget whim out on the edge of the garden on a windswept hill. Um, and there was... I, I don't think I'm being rude if I said there was pretty minimal veg gardening knowledge amongst the team at the time. And uh, mm. and that was one of the things that stood out to me when I was there as a student. You know, in your student year, part of that year is to uh, you have an allotment plot for the year. It's only a, a tiny little seven by four metre bed. And, uh, I remember
0: seeing them yeah, <laughs> And,
2: and we, we've still got them now. <laughs> so even they've been, you know, it's a rite of passage, basically, to come to Hyde Hall and or be a student at the IHS and do an allotment plot. And even back then, um, you know, seven by four, plot. you know, that's nothing. I've got a 10-rod got allotment at home that I've been, <laughs> I've been working in my spare time. Seven by four metres, that's nothing. What's the plus about? And uh, <laughs> it, it was pretty obvious even back then that I had more veg gardening knowledge than, uh, let's face it, probably even most of the management. So when I came back full-time, um, I... Uh, I used to spend a couple of hours each morning in the veg garden. We, ne- we never had a full-time veg gardener. So do two hours in the morning in the veg garden, shared that with a, a, a colleague for a couple of years, and then the rest of my days would be well, technically on the hilltop team, so looking after herbaceous border, rose garden, dry garden, all those areas, um, mm. the, the older parts of Hyde Hall, if you like. Um, and it's only since the Global Growth Garden opened in 2017 that's when I went full-time on the veg garden and finally Hyde Hall was, mm. uh, you know, getting closer to being on parity with the other RHS gardens, having full-time veg gardens.
0: What, what did you, I would just want to know, I'm interested, when you first heard, because I've got vivid memories of what the vegetable garden was like at Hyde Hall in comparison to it now. When you first heard about the plans for the Global Growth Veg Garden to be implemented at Hyde Hall, how did you feel?
2: Oh. Well, I remember. Um, I remember the first time all of us as a garden team were were brought in for a meeting with the designers. Um, so it was Zartal Marsh and her design studio that came up with the the plan. And I remember back then I was probably you know I was quite a. it was two thousand and twelve, two thousand and thirteen, when the design was first presented to us. So it was a long time in the making. This garden, and uh, I was quite a. Probably say quite a young, insignificant, hope level one back then, where my weight of opinion wasn't wasn't uh, regarded that highly. I shouldn't have thought at the time. Um, I remember being quite apprehensive going into that meeting because uh, I do remember thinking, "Oh God, you know, it's a team of garden designers. They're, they're you know, this is this isn't going to be what I would design. This is this isn't going to be a nice, um, easy to look after veg garden with straight lines. They, they're going to try and do something different." And I, I remember joking to my manager, I said, "We're going to walk in there. And it's going to be going to end up being a blatant circle, isn't it? They're going to try and reinvent the wheel or something like that." And and lo and behold, <laughs> it was.
1: <laughs> do, do you know that that's quite interesting because you had a designer design the actual garden. It's very similar to where I am at Stonelands. We had a designer design the veg garden, and sometimes I'm thinking why do we need a designer to design our our, our veg gardens, especially if they don't have, I don't know what Zara's veg garden experience is, but sometimes I think I wish I'd had been involved in designing ours because I would have done things slightly better. Did you find a designer doing it a hindrance or did it help or how did the experience go there?
2: I think if you work for the RHS, then just have to take it on the chin that no garden developments are going to be put out to garden designers that's how the society works um right no new garden area is ever going to be given to one of the horticultural team so there's a blank piece of paper off you go that that's just not how the society works um the way in which it works for us is it's it's our job to uh try and make those plans work on the ground and at planning stage try and um Try and put in as much feedback as we can. Feed in our opinion and try and try and make things so might work a little bit more practically on the ground, or try and envisage how it might work for visitor experience, that kind of thing. Uh, You know, ease of flow around the garden. Um, So yeah, you you know that the RHS is going to get a high profile name in, and and this has been repeated that all the other gardens, you know, Wisley are getting a new. Uh, veg garden they've got an external designer in and the same at Bridgewater as well. You know, they've gone moved completely away from traditional walled Victorian garden. they you know completely reimagined that space. So the RHS has moved away from traditional veg gardens, if you like. And I suppose Hydehall has started that process off. Um so yeah I remember at the time being able to feed things back in like uh, A lot of the beds there were used to be in the original plan, there were a lot greater number of beds, but they were smaller in size. And trying to get changes through like, no, we should have less Mm. beds, but they should be bigger because scale is important. People want to come to be impressed and inspired, they don't want to come to look at a little two by two meter bed that you could reproduce at home. Um, So, feeding things like that back in, um, and then really, my job was. As as the horticulturist is the you know the planting plans um, you know the range of crops we had to grow uh, what exactly we were going to grow where we were going to grow it what the crop rotation system was going to be how how could I make that work effectively in a in a very irregular shaped garden where none of the beds are the same size or shape or square meterage that's where my job comes in really and through the build process. You know that lasted probably eighteen months um as one of the gardeners below like real management level doesn't really have too much input on that part either it's really sort of a you know as curator and garden manager level stuff dealing with contractors and material choices and things like that um so yeah it's, it's really really the planting side of bits it. the, the designs where we get stuck in and have the most influence um but yeah uh,
1: uh, it's so it's 2017, so it's only about three years that you've been gardening in it. How 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 does it feel as a veg garden? Is it everything you would hope to be? Is it is it a nice vegetable garden to work in?
2: Yes, yeah. It, it's, it's a nice space. It's um, uh, We get we get a lot of nostalgia uh, amongst visitors, and they say, oh, you know, I, I really prefer, preferred the higgledy-piggledy nature of the old one, and uh, I like the fact that it was you know smaller beds and more representative of what i could do at home we had a lot of that in the first year and now we're heading into our fourth growing season in there uh that's almost it's almost come part and parcel of Hyde Hall now bet it's settled in people know it people like what we do in there um the first couple of years were, were tough you know you kind of rushing to to meet a strict deadline opening day ribbon cutting ceremony Uh, try and get things looking good for that day and then the first year or two were were tricky you know you're finding your feet um trying to work out you know how different beds behave what drains well what doesn't what are the more exposed areas of the garden which areas are more sheltered Uh, do my cropping plans my crop rotations that are they working in this garden do I need to tweak anything and then the fact the garden's circular as well, I found it really tough in the first year or two, to the, the marking out, you know, to get things neat and presentable in a circle. I found that really time consuming, you know.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, you've got no long builder's lines or uh, planks of wood like I can uh, do at mine. That, yeah, it must no, be tricky.
2: No, no, no. It, it is, especially as, um, you know, in a normal veg garden, you'd orientate everything north-south. All your rows north, south, so you know, you're know you getting full sun as it moves across. We're well, in a circular garden. You can't possibly hope to do that, so we just do the best we can, and it means I'll have, I have some rows that work with the curve of the circle and then have other rows that are more radiating out from the centre, and no bed is the same year on year, so my quantities of crops are always going up and down. So you don't just replicate the same dancing plan year after year after year.
0: You've got no, you've got no walls, have you, in the in that garden? There's, there's, so how does that work?
2: That is, that's its biggest weakness, I would say. Um, it's even more exposed than our old veg plots that were ever so marginally just off the brow of the hill. This garden really does take the full force of the southwesterlies as they whip up up and I've richly hit the top of the hill and there the veg garden is. Um, and that does affect us. It, it definitely shortens the growing season in comparison right. to probably other gardens in this location that are more sheltered. I can't plant out as early. Uh, the, the ground takes longer to warm up, definitely. And um, a lot of stuff we leave out over winter gets really battered by the wind. Struggle to grow. You know the all the tall brassicas, you know, winter Brussels sprouting broccoli, the tall kales through the winter, you know, just wind rock is just too strong. You can't grow them to a high standard. or not not a standard I'd feel happy with anyway. But
0: has it has it taught you though to because you've been faced with this climate that like you say is actually fairly open and harsh and, and not the not the usual has it made you in that way have you sort of risen to the challenge and thought well this is what I've got you know have you learned what what things are really successful
2: yes and I think um I think part of it you you have a grounding in that as being a gardener at Hyde Hall anyway because that, yeah. <laughs> that's just what gardening at Hyde Hall is about is, is dealing with yeah. The wind. Um, but yeah we, we've put I've put a lot of work in to try and develop the shelter belt to the um the west and the south of the veg garden and probably to be honest it's probably not going to be me that gets the full benefit of that planting um but it'll get there in time and it, it will become a more sheltered garden um but yeah you learn to be strict with not being lazy with your staking um little things like uh but like when we're building our our a-frames for runner and climbing beans you know it's not it's not a quick overhand, not round the bamboo cake. Off you go. I, I do, you know, full-on full square lashings around <laughs> hazel poles that have been driven into the ground a long way because I know from experience that if you sling them up, then they don't last.
1: Right. <laughs> real, real, real Boy Scout stuff.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's not uncommon to have 50-mile-an-hour winds in August and September with the cross yeah. the garden. yeah.
1: But then
0: I guess that's encouraging because a lot of people, for example, who have allotment plots, they are, I've, I've had allotments where they've been, they've been so exposed and so open and you think, what on earth am I going to do? How, how do I face this? So actually that that kind of mentality, that mindset, like you say, the really good staking, I guess there's certain crops that maybe are more resilient to buffering the winds and things like that. Is there that, that you could recommend?
2: Yeah, so I, I remember trying to be quite clever when we were producing the planting plans, even when the garden's not built and you're looking at birds eye view on paper of the bed and thinking like this is where the wind's going to come from and doing things like I planted the Jerusalem artichokes on a bed um, on the southwest side of the garden that I knew were going to get really tall and act as a bit of a wind, wind break late summer wind break and that's worked mm. quite effectively um, so doing things like yeah you know, th- things like that just trying to factor in the perennial crops a bit more that you know are going to be there how can you? They're not going to ever going to move. How can you put them in a position that's going to work to your advantage a little bit? Um, so yeah, that thought process was always in my mind right from day one. You know, even before groundwork had started, I like, thought how we're we going to deal with this. But you know, the, the lack of shelter and and the high winds, uh, you know, it's bad for some crops. And the fact that we have you know this full scorching sun day. You know, really really hot down there but if you wanted to look at it in a more positive light the fact that we have really long daylight hours the temperatures get really high um you know when the when the weather's good it's really good that's played into my hands a little bit where a lot of the the original design i was expected to grow a lot of unusual and exotic edible crops mm-hmm. you know, things that you wouldn't normally be grown in this country and that was the bit of like oh how how am I going to do this I've got, I've got you know I've got no no idea how to grow these things and I th- I think I've found the the when the weather's good and the climate is good at Hyde Hall I, I think it's made though, growing those things easier than expected Yeah, you know, I have more success with things that you know you read about in books and online it's like this is a marginal crop in the UK it, it will only produce in a good summer uh, well you know some of those things like you know the yard long beans is a classic one where example, this is a polytunnel crop you can't grow these outside you know well I've just proved in the last three years that in the middle of Essex that that's a load of rubbish you can get a crop of <laughs> them but, but that's mainly because we've got a great climate at Hyde Hall with you know that high heat yeah. and strong daylight hours so that that's you know one of the one of the weaknesses of the gardens microclimate is probably also one of its strengths. Really,
0: yeah. Because I I've visited in the in the high summer. You've got things like your obviously the sort of edible dahlia tubers. You've got your yacon. You've got all the tomatillos, the sweet potatoes. There's there's so many lovely looking exotic plants here. There's maize that's just reaches up into the sky forever. You know, there's it's yep. it's you can grow, as you say, some really. Um, Long season crops there when when the weather's good, when you get a good yeah. summer, you are getting a really, really good summer, aren't you
2: yeah, and I think um, practice as well, two or three years of practice to get your eye in you know mm. really this is i think I think a big difference between um, perhaps people that are gardening professionally and doing it on a a hobby basis is is the difference in timings you know always always telling people don't be too early don't be too don't be in a rush with your veg wait till the weather's better and that's Mm. definitely a massive lesson I've learned in growing some of the more tender exotics is you know just don't plan it out until the weather's better and you get they catch up you get so much better crop from be impatient.
0: I put my some french beans out under cloches because I had them growing in the greenhouse then I realized that the greenhouse wasn't going to be big enough for my french beans because I was propagating a lot of stuff so I put them out under glass thinking Well, they might survive. I mean, they've survived, but they haven't moved at all. They've been out there now three weeks at least. I don't think they've put on a new leaf. And I know, you know, I'm thinking, yeah, I probably should have realised that that was what was going to happen. And that's just echoing exactly what you've said there. As you say, these crops, once it is warm enough, they romp away, but they do need those temperatures to be be up there. So can I just ask quickly as well, um, are you anticipating that the garden might be open later this summer? You're obviously growing stuff. Uh, What... Are you hoping that that might be the case, that you might get some autumn visitors to the gardens? Or
2: Yeah, I mean, last I heard, you know, it's looking fairly likely that we might be open for some of the summer, let alone the autumn, mm. but yeah. fingers crossed. I mean, obviously no guarantees, and I, I hope I'm not speaking out of, out of, out of turn in, in hoping that. Um, but, yeah, basically what I've done this year is i I knocked a lot of the spring sowings um on the head. We made the decision very early on that anything I was likely to harvest before June just don't bother with. Um so all my early sowings of brassicas I didn't do. Uh, a lot of the early salad crops didn't do. Um haven't grown any peas in the veg garden this year because I had the hunch that they've probably been and gone by any chance of time of us likely to be open. Um so I tried to cut out as much as I could. But in the grand scheme of things, it wasn't that much because um, the gardens, for people listening that don't know, the garden's divided into continent areas and we grow crops in the part of the garden, the continent area in which they originate from. And that means probably 50% of the garden is frost tender exotics that you would mm-hmm. be planting out you know, mid to end of May, early June and would be cropping in late summer. So if we didn't do those things if we decided not to grow them, then basically you don't have the Global Growth Fish Garden at Hyde Hall for 2020. Um, (laughs) So so we kind of, I I didn't have a choice, you know, it was highly likely that we'd be open for late summer, early autumn and and I have to do those things. So, you know, all all the beans and squashes and the corn and uh, all the things that we grow in the South American section, they all still needed to be grown. So there's no, no let up. Uh, really so yeah hopefully i'm i'm hoping we can be open by july i hope yeah
0: oh really
1: well yeah no fingers crossed f- fingers crossed you are open um and before we we wrap up we do need to talk about the one veg of which i i get very <laughs> excited about because when i when i was the show manager for chelsea uh my offices were above the london halls and every autumn show in would be wielded these mammoth pumpkins on pallets, <laughs> absolute the size of small uh, cars. Uh, and we know that, and I, I can't remember which year it is, you grew one of the largest pumpkins in the UK a few years ago now?
2: Yeah, so so I started, uh, I've been growing pumpkins at Hall the whole time I've been there and it's something I never set out to do. It kind of morphed into, it just took off, completely unplanned. But, yeah, 2016 was the first year I set out to grow a really giant pumpkin. Did it for three years. Um, Broke lots of different records along the way. But in 2016, I grew world's most expensive pumpkin seed that was bought by Thompson and Morgan. How how much? It was £1,250 for one seed sold auction
0: wow I, I remember that the press seen the press release about
2: that, <laughs> i'm in the wrong i'm like, in the wrong game my I, leaks
1: are not going <laughs> to uh, not going to match that I, I, I
2: was i was there at the auction when it was being sold it was a, i went i went along to this uh, it sounds really geeky when you say it out loud but i went to a a giant pumpkin growers weekend conference <laughs> it was it was that was held down by uh, Ian and Stuart Payton's nursery down in Hampshire. They're the best. I'm, I'm
0: just gutted. I missed it, man. I'm gutted. <laughs> and and
2: they, they, had the seed auction, they had the seed auction there. And that was, that was the first time met, I met Paul Hanson, who used to work at t and I remember watching yeah. him bidding on this auction and thinking, this guy's a madman. Who's going to pay this much for one seed? And uh, uh, little did I know he was going to come back in a couple of weeks' time and offer it to me to grow. Um, and that's how, that's how Paul being Paul and his tricks of the trade and knowing how to harness press attention and that collaboration between them and the RHS and me being a veg grower, just all snowballed into this ridiculous year. And, um, it was something I was always trying to grow a big pumpkin. I just didn't intend it to be with, uh, you know, such attention on it. Um, but once I was given that seed, I thought I better take this seriously. And I did. I put, you know, every, every waking minute of my life that year, I put into growing giant pumpkins. If I wasn't at work, I was on the pumpkin patch afterwards, trying to <laughs> tending to these things. See, and I ended up... Matt,
0: this is karma. Yeah. This is karma. Because you said early on in your interview, you didn't have any pressures when it was your A-levels. You were like, do you know what? I can just wing it a bit. <laughs> and now it's come back. Yeah. It's come back to get you. <laughs> Imagine
1: your teachers saying, um, not very good at maths, but pumpkins, that man's got it. <laughs>
2: but you know in the end I ended up growing the record I got that year was the largest the largest the heaviest pumpkin grown outdoors in the UK that year so I turned the the world's most expensive seed into an outdoor grown UK record well done we ended up doing silly things like turning into boats on boating on the lake Because I grew four of them that year um (laughs) then (laughs) and then then, then it's in your blood isn't it you know once you start doing growing something like that you know they call it yeah. the pumpkin sickness or pumpkin disease <laughs> and you get it and then like you know everyone expected me to knock it on the head because I put in 200 man hours doing these things so but I did it again the next year and I broke the record again and I even surprised myself so the largest one I've ever grown was uh Pound and a half shy of fifteen hundred pounds. Oh. I think it's like oh. six hundred and fifty kilos or something like that. So that's the current. That's the current outdoor grime record. Um,
0: so there you go. That's your challenge. I think Matt's thrown down. The, <laughs> he's throwing down the gauntlet. Come on, get that Devonshire soil pumped up with mycorrhizal fungi.
1: <laughs> I grew one. Was well, about thirty ki- thirty kilos, and I was actually quite pleased with that. As a it was. Um, is it atlantic giant atlantic? atlantic giant yeah yeah atlantic giant and i thought i'm going to give it a go and it didn't really turn into those monstrosities you see on the pallets but <laughs> i thought that was pretty good it That's... was it it wasn't very tasty at all, but you know, as a as a thing, I was quite pleased.
2: Oh <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, they're not they're not grown for eating, they're grown for showing off, definitely. <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> so have you have you
0: got yours planted out yet, Matt? Because I know we we're we're interviewing you and this is the early May Bank holiday weekend where we're due on Sunday, I think is it Sunday night, we're due a really, really cold snap going down to where I am here, just outside Colchester, so it's gonna go down to about one degree. So have you got have you got it outside under a cloche yet or is it still in Nurture the away somewhere or
2: no they're uh this year well, last year and this year i'm only growing uh one giant pumpkin and i'll do it in a a tiny little bed up in our learning garden right. um because the you know the school kids are absolutely captivated by a giant pumpkin it, it doesn't take long to work out that if you want people to if you want kids to leave Hyde hall with a, a like a lifelong memory about gardening then show them a giant pumpkin yeah oh absolutely um, so so I've grown, the last couple of years I've managed to produce something about 600 pounds out of a little three by three metre bed, which astonished even me that I could achieve mm-hmm. that in such a small area. So I'm doing that again this year um, and though the plants are currently sitting in my greenhouse in my garden on the heated bench. Um, they'll be planted out probably end of May, something like that and that. Uh, if you excuse me, giving myself a little plug, but if anyone wants to know how to grow a giant pumpkin, I'm I'm actually recording the process this year. Excellent. So if anyone wants to follow me on Instagram, learn all the tricks of the trade on how to grow a massive one, then hit me up on Instagram and you'll find out how i do it because there's no secrets. Anyone with a bit of effort could grow a 500-pound pumpkin quite easily. So
0: there you go. Okay. There you go. Get yourself on Instagram.
2: I don't
1: know if I. <laughs> do you know? I don't know if I've got space. I tell you what. A pumpkin. Do you know? I. I. I've only just got into the veg growing game in the last six years. With uh, where I work, we got uh, about a third of an acre, and uh, I said, "Do you want some pumpkins?" So I, I put in about five plants, and it took up about a third of the veg garden, all over the path, <laughs> up the greenhouse, mm. and the owner was thinking a trip. It was taking over, so I've learned now <laughs> that you need quite a bit of space for a pumpkin. Yes,
2: yeah, my big ones take up a thousand square foot. So yeah, massive. That's impressive. That's impressive. For one plant. That's impressive. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, well, I tell you what, that is going to be a treat for people to see unravel this summer, Matt. That's uh, that's that there is golden record beating gardening advice <laughs> being given away free. <laughs> You haven't got to buy a book or do anything like that. It's just going to be there. You're, this is gardeners are so generous with the knowledge. So honestly, Matt, it's been a a real pleasure to have you as a, a guest on our Talking Heads podcast mm-hmm. today. Thank you so so much for your time. We really really hope that the global growth veg garden is going to open in July as you as you hope. If people can get there, honestly, please get yourself there. It is fantastic. Go and track Matt down and give him a. Uh, Slap on the back for doing such a great job there. And uh, thank you very, very much indeed for your time, Matt.
2: Thank you for having me. My pleasure.
1: We really hope you've enjoyed listening in to our conversation. We definitely look forward to bringing you more of these in the future.
0: Staying in touch with our fellow peers in the industry is more important now than ever. So if you have an idea of someone who would like to appear on the Talking Heads podcast... Or indeed, if you'd like to come and chat with us yourself, please do get in touch.
1: In the meantime, please listen to our past podcasts and enjoy a little peek into our gardening lives. Until the next
0: episode of Talking Heads, goodbye. goodbye!